0: go yeah so last week we discussed uh prince and the pooch was the episode title as um you may guess from that it's prince and the Popper? our guest was uh mr william watt uh voiceover and podcaster uh you know an all-around british guy <laughs> all-around uh, british guy to uh assist us um that's that's now two british guys we've had on the show
1: that's true uh we may have a third very soon
0: there you go it's gonna be it's gonna be a hybrid cross the pond show. Yeah. We're, um,
1: we're building our own like uh, new era Ricky Gervais uh, series here. So what were your thoughts now that we're a week past on the Prince and the Popper and or The Prince and the Pooch? Um, so I really like the episode and now having watched uh our movie that we decided to go hand in hand with the series that um you know, obviously the, the book uh <laughs> so we we watched um you know the episode last week and one of the things you pointed out was um like how many movies are influenced by this book uh you know the first thing that came to my mind was um trading places which is the movie that we watched but uh the thing I noticed then while watching Trading Places, which is like the entire conceit of the show of the movie is like nature versus nurture, which is like somehow that went right over my head on Prince and the Popper, even though mm. like clearly that's what it's about. But just like thematically, like I didn't just like connect the two things. Um, I yeah. wonder if this is one of the first arguments of nature versus nurture, like in popular fiction. I think in modern fiction, because obviously this is Mark Twain. So it's, you know, late 1800s.
0: Um So I, which I would consider, you know, the modern age of human thought, um, as opposed to stuff that was, you know, Renaissance or medieval or those type of classic hero's journey stories. Like this one actually like, yeah, like you're saying, it's, it's starting to explore and break down, you know, common themes that are current in our society and still current, you know, they're this, this type of story of being able to suddenly be someone you're not for for good and for bad has always been I think something in American at least culture um the ability to for you to be like a poor guy and suddenly you get picked up in a limo and taken to a mansion and all of a sudden you're rich you know mm-hmm. that is that's like part of a that is a certain section of the American dream you know to To become wealthy from nothing. And, you know, on the flip side, I think there's this, you know, I think we talked about it a little bit was this kind of idea of pushing that, oh, rich people aren't really happy. They want to be somehow, they're they're, they're imprisoned by their wealth and they want to be free from that. They want to escape. I still think that's
1: poor people just trying to think that like being rich isn't all that cracked up. Or it's
0: rich people trying to tell poor people, hey,
1: it's not that good. Don't try it. <laughs> then stop hoarding all of your money. Yeah, I'm just <laughs> like it's. I have a really simple solution for you. If you uh, are rich and you don't think it that it's that great, get rid of it. Yeah, share so, the
0: wealth. <laughs> so trading places, we watched it. Um, I feel like this movie. I grew up watching it a lot for some reason, um, mostly because we had a VHS copy of it. For some reason in our house. And I would watch it very young. Um, even though it is not a movie for kids. Really explains a lot about you now. Yes. Um, you know, so... What year...
1: I'm looking up what year the movie came out. 80s, definitely. Dan Aykroyd was way too thin.
0: It's pre-Ghostbusters, though.
1: Yeah. Early 80s. I'm going to go with 1983. Oh,
0: you are correct. Oh, get the fuck out of here. Yep, 1983. Um, yeah, so you have Dan Aiello, Eddie Murphy, uh, Jamie Lee Curtis, um, Denholm Elliott, a couple other sort of random people from the late 70s, early 80s movies. Uh, you have early 80s New York, which is that like iconic grime, filthy place, <laughs> you know, before it got all cleaned up by Rudy Giuliani um but so the i i really like this movie um one because i think the comedy it's brash it's unapologetic it's openly racist at times um it doesn't it doesn't really hold back which is great um and let's talk a little bit about the differences though between this type of story and what we watched in wishbone because I feel like the the biggest difference to me was in I guess in Wishbone and their interpretation of the original book is that the prince and the pauper voluntarily switch after yeah, meeting.
1: That was the thing I was wondering if you were going to say because that's definitely the the starkest difference here. Uh, also, yeah. they don't look anything alike.
0: Correct. Um, and the whole point I think is like because we're going to do this like opposite in every way and form, both in race and in culture and. In status, like obviously, Dan Aykroyd's character in the beginning is sort of an asshole, but doesn't realize it. And it's until like he's broken down by this whole process is like when he realizes, like, you know, I suck. Yeah, and like he he doesn't I don't he doesn't necessarily change though. He just
1: makes a new friend. Yeah. So here's here's something though that I think you uh, you should keep in mind. Um, The idea that agency was taken away from them as opposed to them volunteering to be in this situation. I think that uh, at first I thought that was like a really big difference, but I think it's actually a a slightly more superficial difference only because I feel like the real prince in the pauper story starts once the king is like, hey, no, okay, I'm actually the prince uh, and no one believes him. And suddenly he's actually stuck there and he really has to live that life. And you know the prince is like n- not going to be able to get out of his life either, like the the yeah. the the popper. Um, and so I feel like once they lose agency, it's like, oh no, now you actually have to live this lifestyle. Whereas in the movie, they just immediately start there, and that's because they didn't do a lookalike situation because there's no way for them to just be like, hey, let's like swap. Some yeah. places like no one would stand for that agency had to be taken away for that story. But ultimately, yeah. the prince and the pauper agency is taken away. And that's when like his real plight begins because everything up until then was superficial. It's like, oh, OK, cool. I had uh, now that I'm slightly uncomfortable, I'm going to go back. And now no one's letting me go back. And now he actually has to live the shitty lifestyle because up yeah. until then, it's like it, it, it's almost like a voyeuristic experience for him. Like there were no stakes. Like he didn't really have to live that lifestyle. He just got to look at it for a moment. But it wasn't really like an experience for him. And until that agency was taken away, it was.
0: It was uh, tourism and poverty as opposed to actually experiencing it.
1: Um, Exactly. And so I think think obviously the catalyst for the two stories is very different. But ultimately, once they get to that point, the Prince and the Pauper story, it's pretty similar from there, um, just in the way that things go. Yeah.
0: And it's just like they do a little bit of, you know, Dan Aykroyd. He um, essentially gets arrested, gets picked up. By Jamie Lee Curtis's character, takes him home. He tries to then go back to his life and to his apartment. And it's like interesting because Denome Elliott's character, his butler, is um, is kind of like forced to act like he doesn't know him. You know? Mm-hmm. And it's kinda it's such an yeah. interesting I thought that sort was
1: of- one of the the strangest parts of the whole thing.
0: Yeah, because it's like clearly on his face, he knows like okay, this person I've taken care of for some number of years, but now I have to act like they're not real. It seemed not.
1: more like he could. They could have just fired the butler and put a new butler in. So when he knocked on the door, and there was a different butler.
0: Yeah, but he. I don't know. Maybe he, he was just that good at being a butler that they. Get, like, uh, but it brings up the whole point is that um, I forget what the the brothers' names that actually organized the Duke brothers. The Duke brothers, yeah. So they are the ones that. Organize something, I guess. So they own everything. They I owned. So. They owned his apartment. They owned his butler. So basically like, it. like. It's like almost like we own you, but we give you an allowance. Right. To do what you want? That's what it bit. seems like. So, um, which I'm sure that actually exists in many parts of the U S. There's people that like, you know, essentially l- live as almost like these. Um, these a people lifestyle. need to go.
1: Like, watching this, it was like, oh, that's right. There's still people that live like this. These people need to go. They're not a part of, like, actual society. Who, the Duke brothers
0: or Dan Erkowitz's character?
1: The entire organization. That was, like, (laughs) the meeting of the Legion of Doom. Like, before, like, Trump's election, that's what I predict, like... That's what I I picture, like, the planning stages looked like. It was just this, like, massive meeting room. And it was just all old white guys. There was literally (laughs) nothing else in there. It was terrifying. It was, like... It was like the, the precursor to the Third Reich in there.
0: Yeah. <laughs> um but yeah, so and then and then basically in, when they finally do essentially switch back, they don't switch back, they decide to get revenge on the Duke brothers for causing this to happen. Um
1: in the best way possible. Yeah, they get they them attack back to the <laughs>
0: Is that yeah. <laughs> okay um but yeah so they they basically I, I i love the last scene the whole stock market scene oh it's so good because it's just like you finally kind of understand like obviously that's
1: not even how it works now because it's all done with a computer but yeah but you're there's like, still oh, some yeah. of that there's still all these people out on the floor and like yelling and screaming shit
0: yeah, but it's like I love those like pits back in like back in the old days when they actually had to like yeah. <laughs> write stuff out. Um, yeah, and uh, I like – yeah, basically up until when they decide to get the revenge plot, the last 30 minutes of the movie are great. Like the whole train sequence on New Year's is great of them having to steal the thing except for the super racist uh, Dan Aykroyd dressing up as a Jamaican man. Uh, scene was a little uncomfortable.
1: Yeah, I was going to say we're not we're not going to not um mention the black face, right? Cuz the black face was out of control.
0: There was a, there was a lot of odd things going on in that scene because one you had
1: a gorilla in that train. I think sequence. I think uh just before you continue, we should say if you're going to watch this movie and you haven't, you should be prepared for the fact that this is almost a 40-year-old movie and uh there are a lot of really like racially uh insensitive things that happen in this film
0: yeah but I, I i think we we brought that up right in the beginning here where it was like it's a movie where the comedy is from another era it's a little more brash a little more i'm just more, trying to slightly back.
1: more deliberate with some of the things that they say people should yes. be prepared for that it made yes. me uncomfortable at times i was like this yes. should not be happening
0: there there's a point when dan Aykroyd, when he thinks his life is switched back, Uh, wakes up by saying something super racist, (laughs) which is great. Um, And Eddie Murphy reaction into it is actually what makes it funny. But I mean, even
1: the catalyst for the whole film is because of that, because the the reason the Duke brothers get that idea is because they see Dan Aykroyd arguing with um, Eddie Murphy's character and Dan Aykroyd just jumps to the conclusion that this black guy that he bumped into was trying to rob him. Because he's an African-American – like, he's a black dude. They were just like, hey, we're – I'm going to – you know, and and everyone's going to believe me and everyone's going to, like, jump – like, you know, they're like, so eight you, police officers pointing guns the, at him.
0: So do you think with, like, the Duke brothers – because, like, the, they get the idea when they see Dan Archer the way he's treating this man. Right. And it's, like, to them, it's, like, they are, in some weird good way, they are teaching him a lesson, but – They aren't like necessarily angelic or good nature themselves. They are horrible people themselves, but they do actually kind of commit a good act by sort of torturing this man, (laughs) you know, by forcing him out
1: on the street. I'm glad one of the Duke brothers dies at the end. I felt good about that. He doesn't die. He just, he might die though. It's not unclear. In my, in my fiction, he doesn't make it. (laughs) <laughs> he gets the heart attack he doesn't make it so then the other one because the the one that had the heart attack was the one that was arguing in favor of nature like like be, putting people in these situations is bad it's not like it's it's not like genetically their fault like they're not automatically a bad person yeah. uh, and he was the one who had the heart attack and so that's the better fiction because then the other one who's now broke has to live on his own so now not only is he is he has he lost everything but he also uh is by it's himself yeah, yeah Doesn't have his so that's in my fiction, it's the ultimate punishment. That makes sense. Um,
0: okay, so yeah, so that uh, that wraps that up a little bit. Um, and speaking of revenge, what's like about that segue, talking about they get revenge at the end, kind of leads us into our next episode, which is next week we'll be watching um, the episodes called The Count's Count or The Count's Account, which is and about it, the Count of Monte Cristo. Yes, it the is. The ultimate revenge
1: story. Oh, boy. Um, so. Yeah, I. Uh, we have one or two tentative people that are coming for that, so I can't announce who it is just yet. Um, but we'll have someone on for a guest for that. It probably won't just be you yeah. and I.
0: I'm excited. I'd have actually never read uh, Edmond Dante's uh, classic novel, but it's been like, it is the quintessential revenge story that has been, I think, an inspiration for so many movies and TV shows that it's like the ultimate you know, sort of go-to thing. It, it is the Odyssey of Revenge. Like the TV show Revenge? Basically. I'm so <laughs> they literally just it boil now. it down for that. Um, and let me, I'll just read the plot of the Oakdale story. It is, um, after one of David's inventions is used by DeMont to ruin Wanda's Amen. garden and blame Wanda, or no, and make Wanda blame David, David thinks of a clever way to get revenge against DeMont. Unfortunately, an innocent party is caught up in the crossfire wishbone oh i don't know we'll see I'll just, i'm excited it's a david episode
1: i'm so excited for this this sounds fantastic it's got everything you want it's got a good villain it's got a good contraption it's got david it's got wanda it's got wishbone it's got wishbone i'm so excited
0: all right oh that's gonna wrap it up for this uh week's episode podcast um we'll all see you next week for the counts account bark bark everybody bye bye